And so last week, Pastor Jason walked you through the first part, which deals essentially with the fact that God's purposes for his good news of salvation through Jesus Christ does not just extend to the Jews, but it extends to the Gentiles. This is a fulfillment of Acts 1.8, Luke's purpose statement, that the good news of Jesus will go through all of the world. It is for all kinds of people, not just some kinds of people. And so the Gentiles are affirmed by the Holy Spirit who comes upon them in verse 15 of chapter 11. And their conclusion is that God has granted life even to the Gentiles. That's how powerful the good news of Jesus is. That it takes all of us who are the furthest from God and brings us all the way to God. Essentially, Acts is a story about the church trusting in Jesus' promise to build his church. Jesus uttered those words in Matthew 16, 18, that he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As God's people pray and as they work, they're trusting in Christ. What I want you to see from this text is that I want you to learn that the early church and even the church today, it doesn't drop out of heaven without a context and without a process and a progress, but rather Jesus builds his church in a particular way, and that is this. He slowly and methodically builds his church as we partner together to accomplish the mission of the church together. God is gathering his bride, and all of us who are on our way to that wedding feast, we get the privilege of handing out wedding invitations along the way. And all who God is calling will join us at that feast one day. So the same way Jesus grew his church in the early days, I want you to see that Jesus is still growing his church by building a team of gospel partnerships. And he invites us to join in his work. So that's our big idea for this morning. I want to walk through this text verse by verse, beginning in 19. And as we walk through this, I hope that you see that jump out from the text. And I hope that the Holy Spirit penetrates your heart convicts and mobilizes you to obey God and join him in his work. So let's pray together to that end. God, we ask for your help. We need it. We each came here this morning with a set of concerns and worries and experiences that we're dealing with. And it's easy for us to get focused on the here and now and maybe even what's after this morning. But Lord, I pray that the next half hour we spend together in your word will be profitable and fruitful for our hearts, that we would indeed see the joy that is before us to join you in your work of building your church. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Verse 19 tells us that those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So, As verse 19 begins this part of the story, you have to understand what it's referring to when it talks about this persecution that arose over Stephen. Stephen was, is known as, and was the first Christian martyr. He gave his very life. He died. He was stoned to death because he would not forsake his allegiance to Christ. And that galvanized the enemies of God and his gospel So that after they killed Stephen, the first Christian to die, they then began under the leadership of Saul 
to persecute even more Christians and they were chasing them. So Christians were on the run for their lives and they were scattered abroad, whereas they once were concentrated in Jerusalem in what some might consider a holy huddle. God said, I need for you to get out. And God used this persecution to get them out. And when he describes these places, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, he's essentially saying that God's people were being spread everywhere. I want you to think about how this is one instance of God using evil for good. God's constantly bringing order out of the chaos. And his strategy here is to get the team sprinkled throughout the world, out of the salt shaker into the world. And God, I want you to know and be encouraged by the fact that God has purpose in the most terrible of things that happen. And you may not be experiencing persecution, although you may be. You may have lost your job because of your faith in Christ. That's going to be happening, I believe, more and more. We should be prepared for that. That's the Christian norm, is to experience persecution. Perhaps, though, for some of you, you can't relate to that because you're not being persecuted for your faith. But can I just make an application to your life right now? And that is this. No matter what bad is happening in your life, you can rest assured and be encouraged that God is using that with intentional purpose for your good and for his glory. You may have dissatisfaction in your job. You may be experiencing depression. You may be in the midst of a relational poverty. God doesn't delight in the evils of our lives, but he certainly delights in how he uses them. And that is to bring each of us to a place where we're continually renouncing our idols, those things that would take the place of the one true living God, those idols of comfort, and we would surrender fully to him. Toward good ends, God is specifically directing even our place. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, the Bible clearly states that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Pay attention to the last half here. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. For the past 23 years, I've served in four different states in vocational church ministry. And as I look back in hindsight with as is typical, probably your experience as well, with better vision in the past. And I look at some of the challenging situations I've been in and the challenging ministry assignments that God has given me. God has moved me along. In many cases, he's moved me along because things weren't going well. Things were hard. I remember one job I had, this is while I was in Michigan. No offense to Michigan, Wing Brothers. But while I was in Michigan, just one of the most terrible job experiences and bosses that I'd ever, I'd ever had in my life. And I remember distinctly praying, Lord, please help me learn whatever lesson it is that you have in mind for me to learn so that I can move along to the next thing you have me. <laughs> and I think that prayer was partially right and partially wrong for the record. But the Lord saw and the Lord knew and the Lord taught me what he needed to teach me. And he sent me away from there to a new assignment serving a church in Florida. And I could tell you story after story of the Lord moving me because of difficulty. There was a push away from where I was. And that's what was happening here is the church needed a push away from Jerusalem, away from comfort and security and peace because God hasn't called us to that. Now, sometimes, as is the case, I might add, for our brother Caleb and our sister Abby, 
Sometimes the Lord moves you into a new place due to a pull. And that's a pretty sweet thing. And by the way, I would encourage you, we should always be obedient to the Lord to be his witnesses before the persecution and the hard times come. (laughs) That's the goal. But sometimes we need evil, bad things, chaos. We need that because God uses that. God saw fit that he would use that to stir and spark us to be on mission, to be his witnesses. God is using it. And you may be at the tail end of a job that ended in turmoil. Maybe you flunked out of school or maybe your family has shunned you. God is not surprised. He's putting you exactly where he wants you for your good, for his glory. Well, scripture says that as they were scattered, at first they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. But again, Luke's continuing his point that the gospel is for all kinds of people. So look at verse 20. It tells us, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. The Hellenists were the Greek speakers. They would fit as one group, subsection of the larger umbrella term, Gentiles. And so some of the people were beginning to speak to Gentiles. They were also preaching the Lord Jesus, sharing the gospel with others. And verse 21 tells us that the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is an amazing account of how the Lord was growing and building his church. And he was using it through these anonymous people in verse 20. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, we don't know their names. We don't know anything else about them. But they came to Antioch and they began to preach the Lord Jesus to all different kinds of people. Jesus told a parable about the gospel seed being sown. He says the gospel seed is kind of like a farmer who puts out his seed. And a few months ago, we did that in our backyard. We planted gardens and we put down some sunflower seeds and the birds ate them. And sometimes that happens. But Jesus in his parable tells us that the seed sprouts. But the farmer, he planted and he watered and he went to sleep. And the next day he woke up and the seed sprouted and he didn't know how, but they were growing. Gospel growth is like that. And and that's how we see this story unfold is they were planting gospel seed and it was because of the hand of the Lord that God was supernaturally growing the church. God was leading people. He was granting them repentance from their sins and he was leading them to believe that Jesus Christ was Lord. I would add to this that in our day, the 21st century, churches often feel a particular impulse, and I would say temptation, to rely on other things than the hand of the Lord to grow the church. The hand of the Lord was with these people as they worked together to spread the gospel, but it's easy for churches in our day to believe that they can grow the church by doing something that's cool in the eyes of the world, by having something that's really flashy, I mean, churches in today's society will do all kinds of different things to try to get people to come. But Jesus' command was not get them to come to your building. Jesus' command was to be my witnesses. The strategy of the kingdom is simple. The strategy of the kingdom is that we, as we go through our lives, would make disciples of Jesus, leading them to know him, leading them to follow him, leading them to serve him with their lives, even as we ourselves do. When the hand of the Lord is for you, who can be against you? 
Psalm 127 tells us that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So UBC, don't place the highest priority on having a gifted communicator in the pulpit. Don't place the highest priority on having gifted musicians. Don't place highest priority on having an incredible social, social media presence or cutting edge technology. Don't place the highest priority on a well-oiled strategic machine. Rather, prioritize the favorable presence and hand of the Lord in your life. This is why when the church prays, the church invites the powerful presence of the Lord. Because prayer is an acknowledgement that God's got this. Prayer is a dependence and an expression of trust that unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain who build it. Well, the church at Jerusalem, they heard about this good work of God among the Greek speakers. Look at verse 22. It tells us that the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. That he said, wow, God's at work in Antioch too. So they sent a man named Barnabas to Antioch. I think they probably sent Barnabas for a couple of big reasons. Number one, they sent Barnabas to Antioch because they wanted to validate and affirm that these brothers and sisters were in the same family, that they were also preaching the same gospel and that they were Christians. But secondly, they sent Barnabas, and this I believe to be the primary reason from the text, is that they sent Barnabas because Barnabas had earned this name. Barnabas, it means son of encouragement. They sent Barnabas primarily to encourage the church at Antioch where God was at work and to strengthen and encourage them. In fact, the Bible tells us a little bit about Barnabas and it tells us about what Barnabas does. It tells us in verse 23, three things that he did. When he came and saw the grace of God, man, I love that. Just <laughs> He saw the grace of God. He wasn't impressed with how slick this was or how cool that was. He saw the grace of God. I just love that part of my job. I get to come to places like UBC. I get to come to 97 different churches in the area. I travel around and be an encouragement to them and celebrate with them. And I see the grace of God. This is powerful. This really resonates with me. Barnabas came. He saw the grace of God. And here are three things he did. Number one, he was glad. He rejoiced. And then number two, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Man, we need that. We need that on a micro level with people in our lives. Do you have someone in your life like Barnabas who will encourage you to remain steadfast in the Lord? I hope you do. I have over the years and am I ever grateful. I don't know where I would be without other brothers and sisters in my life who have encouraged me to stay faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. But thirdly, uh, we see that he led them. It tells us a little bit later that he gathers up Saul. He goes to Tarsus in verse 25, where Saul had sought refuge, himself being persecuted now that he had been converted to Christ. And verse 26 tells us that when he found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. So this is Barnabas not only going to Antioch to encourage them, but this is Barnabas looking for people to bring along with him, looking for people that he can mentor and encourage along the way to be an encouragement to others. 
The Bible tells us in verse 24 that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. I love this description of Barnabas. He's, he's truly one of the heroes of the New Testament. But if you'll notice when the Bible describes him, the Bible doesn't describe his gifting. The Bible doesn't describe how much money he had. Doesn't describe his credentials, degrees, pedigree. The Bible describes him as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's such a good word for each one of us. Some of you are here and you kind of trust in your pedigree or your degrees or credentials or gifting. And you think, you may not say this out loud because you'd be shamed probably, but you think, man, the Lord's really, really blessed to have me on his team. <laughs> but we know that's not the case, don't we? The Lord doesn't need me. The Lord doesn't need you. The Lord doesn't need anything outside of himself. He is perfectly sufficient in who he is. And yet, because it delights him, he invites us to come. He invites us as we pursue Christ to take part in the growth of his church. There's some of you that need to hear that. Don't rely on those things. See how the Lord used Barnabas. He used him because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Pursue those things and the Lord will use you mightily for his glory. Some of you need to hear that because you say, well, James, I'm here and I don't have any pedigree. I don't have any degrees. Don't have any great experience. I'm poor as dirt. I've got nothing. Great. Come. Be a part of God's glorious work, growing his church. He uses each kind of person just like you are. Pursue goodness. Pursue the Holy Spirit and be filled with faith. The Bible tells us in verse 24 that as Barnabas came and as he encouraged them, as he rejoiced with them, as he led them and discipled them and got Saul and brought him along, the Bible tells us that a great many people were added to the Lord there in verse 24. In verse 25, it tells us this account where Barnabas finds Saul and brings him to Antioch. And look at the last half of verse 26. For a whole year, Saul and Barnabas met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is a great little statement here. And this is one of those texts, as is the case with most parts of scripture. I mean, I would love to do a sermon on the character study of Barnabas. That would be a great, a great series to do. But this little phrase here is another one that I think, man, there's a sermon there. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. People began to call them Christians, which literally in this context would have meant little Christ, belonging to Christ and imitating Christ. The, the, the word Christian is actually not used in the Bible very much at all. It's used in Acts 26, 28, when King Agrippa was responding to the gospel call. And King Agrippa said, in such a short time or with such little effort, would you persuade me to be a Christian? To be like and act like a little Christ? King Agrippa was saying, do you think you're gonna persuade me to turn down my title and power and authority and riches so that my new identity could be simply a Jesus follower? 
But that's essentially what it means to be a Christian. Now, in today's society, that's the most popular term for those who follow Jesus. They're a Christian. It's almost become, it's almost lost its biblical meaning and taken on a sociological meaning. But being a Christian means essentially that you know Jesus, you have a relationship with him, and you follow him because he's your Lord, he's your master, he's your savior, he's also your friend. And these people, though they had previously been known by their ethnicity, they had previously been known by their gender, they had previously been known by their status in society, they were now letting all of those former identities be caught up under the identity of Christ. This is a great summary of what it means to be a Christian. And if you're here this morning and you're visiting and you don't know Jesus and you would not be considered a little Christ, one who belongs to him and follows him and imitates him. Let me state it as simply and plainly as I can. If you are at a place where you're ready to give up on all of your attempts to forge an amazing identity for yourself, and you've tried all the filters on Instagram, you've tried TikTok, you've tried all, everything there is to try in the world's eyes that make you an influencer, someone with significance, someone with popularity, but you have tasted the emptiness of that world of building an identity for yourself, I invite you, God's word invites you to exchange that for an identity with Christ. For you to be united with Christ and for the best things that you have to offer, for you to acknowledge that they are, as the scripture says, like filthy rags before the Lord. And your life can be lived in fullness of joy and your life can be lived with fullness of purpose and meaning in pursuit of Jesus. That's exactly what describes the church at Antioch. And God was doing this great work as Barnabas, as Saul, as many, many other people came together to make Jesus known. And then in verse 27, we see even more people that God's using to grow his church. So you've got Barnabas, an encourager. You've got Saul, who was a former murderer, and now he's a Christian. You've got all these people coming to follow Jesus. And now look, we have an interesting story here in verse 27. It tells us in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So now we've got prophets. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. You know, as our text comes to an end here, it seemed to me when I first read this, it seemed to me that this was a little bit of a tack on, add on kind of a thing. But when I began to see Luke's purpose in weaving this together, that Jesus was building his church and he was using all different kinds of people to work together in order to make this happen, it clicked, it made sense. Here Agabus is, as one specific example, among the prophets, as an individual who was bringing God's word to bear in people's lives in very specific ways and had such a level of discernment and attunement to the word of the Lord that he was even able to foretell here a great famine which would be over all of the known relative world in their context. Luke adds that historical detail to verify that when this happened in the reign of, in the days of Claudius. 
But here Agabus is and these prophets bringing God's word to bear and giving people direction from the Lord. Now, certainly the people needed to test this. Certainly God's people needed discernment in order to see whether or not this this word was true or not. But it's clear from the text that Agabus, also being a good Christian man, also was respected by the people and they believed him. And they followed this. So what happened is they decided, man, we're gonna send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So they took up a collection, an offering, and they sent it to their, their brethren. And so when these prophets came to support the work at Antioch, Agabus foretold. Now, sometimes prophets foretell the truth. And I, I just want to tip you off briefly. We don't have time to fully solve this. This will be another sermon. <laughs> but there is discussion and debate even amongst like-minded Christians about the gift of prophecy and the function of prophecy as it relates here and exactly what this means. So for further study, go to 1 Corinthians 12, particularly verse 10, and do some additional reading and study of this. One of the things that a guest preacher never wants to do is to create a mess that the the pastor has to clean up afterward. And so I don't want to do that. Uh, But I think what we all can agree on, whether you agree that the gift of prophecy is for today or how you define prophecy in these terms, what we can all agree on is that God was using prophets like Agabus and others to lead them together to grow the church. It was because of Agabus's word, his exhortation here, that they generously and lavishly collected money and gave it to the brothers living in Judea. You see, Luke is driving home the point that the Gentiles are a part of God's family on equal footing. He's showing how the gospel has truly broken down dividing walls of hostility. Between those who were once bitter enemies, they've now become allies. The Jews and the Gentiles, though once enemies, are now together so much so that now they're even sharing their money. They were generous with their money, generous with their time, their resources, their people, their leadership. In doing so, what we see on display here is that they were witnessing to the world that they had experienced Jesus. Jesus lovingly pursued his former enemies and he brought them near. And that's what he calls us to do when we follow Jesus, to pursue our enemies and be reconciled to them, to pray for them. Jesus generously gave up his heavenly riches and took on our poverty. And as Christ followers, that's what we do. We generously give of the resources that God has given to us in service and support of others. Jesus humbled himself and took on our frail humanity. And so also we humble ourselves and we get in the mess with other people and we bear their burdens. Jesus willingly put himself in our place on the cross as our substitute, taking on our sins. We also put ourselves in harm's way. None of us secure the atonement that Jesus secured. None of us pay for the debts of the world around us. But we all place ourselves in harm's way for the sake of others, just as Jesus himself did. Jesus wrapped a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet. And we who follow Christ do the same in serving one another humbly. See, this is how Jesus builds his church. He promised he would build his church. And upon that certain promise, our trust in him 
motivates us to take part in that glorious endeavor. I admit it's paradoxical that the way to joy and flourishing is the path of suffering. That the, the way to joy and flourishing is the way of humble service. That the way of Christ is the way of doing the things that nobody else wants to do. That the way of Christ is to generously give away. That the way of Christ is to not climb up the ladder, but to rather climb down. It doesn't make sense to us in our natural mind. But Jesus demonstrated with his life that this life is not about our success. It's first and foremost about making the glory of God known. It's about making him famous. And friends, the emptiness in the world around us, I hope has led each of you to this place where you've fallen at the feet of Christ to say, all is not except for your glory and your fame. You see, as God invites us in this amazing journey, he does it in a largely anonymous way. There are a few people in the New Testament that we kind of consider as heroes, don't we? You might think of Peter or Paul or some of these guys, and there certainly is a place to respect and honor those. But I want you to pay attention to how many times we have seen anonymous people in Jesus growing his church. In verse 19 is the phrase, those who were scattered. In verse 20, the phrase, some of them. In verse 21, a great number. In verse 24, a great many people. In verse 26, again, a, quote, great many people. I hope that what you see here is not, boy, I need to be more like Barnabas. I hope that what you see here is that no matter who God has made you to be, you have a part to play and a role to play. Whether your role is known and your role is on the stage or in the limelight or off, you have an important and essential part to play. Even Barnabas took a back seat. This is kind of an interesting nerdy note about Saul and Barnabas. Saul and Barnabas as a pair, as a team, they're mentioned in the Bible quite a bit together, but listen to the proportion. Half of the time that Saul and Barnabas are mentioned together, exactly half of the times in the New Testament, it's Barnabas and Saul. But there was a pivot point in their relationship. As Barnabas early on began to mentor Saul, there was a pivot point so that the authors later began to revert to them as Saul and Barnabas or Paul and Barnabas. Even Barnabas himself kind of takes a back seat here. What we see in that, I think, is an example of humility. What we see there is an example that Jesus uses teamwork to make the dream work, we say. God's people here fully embrace the truth that the mission of the church is guaranteed by Jesus and they accomplished through his people partnering together. So I want to draw this to a close by asking you to apply this truth by very simply doing ministry with others. Be who God has made you to be. Exercise your gifts. I would ask you to ask yourself this question. What am I doing to get in the right position so I can maximize my contribution to Jesus growing his church? There are two obstacles I want to talk about briefly. Number one, some of you are reluctant to engage in that because you say, well, I'm not a professional minister. I'm not a pastor. But friends, I hope you've seen from this text that the church is mostly unprofessional, non-trained ministers. The ministry of the pew is the most important ministry of the church. 
to serve the least of these, to love neighbors, to disciple others, to know and follow Jesus. In fact, Ephesians chapter four says that the pastor's primary job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You are a vital part of the team of people reaching people. There are no insignificant members of Jesus' church. We each contribute a valuable part. Secondly, some of you may perceive the obstacle of saying, well, I'm not really good at working with other people. I work better alone. Well, why? I would ask you why. Is that maybe easier for you? Do you feel like it's faster? Do you feel like you do a better job? There could be lurking in there a spirit of pride. You've probably heard the old proverb that says, you can go fast alone, but in order to go far, you need to go together. Man, is that ever true in our lives. My wife, Jenny, and I parent four children. And in the last several years, we've picked up this side hustle of flipping houses. (laughs) So we've done three of them in the last couple of years, and we're starting our fourth. And I always bring my kids along with me. I don't care if I'm doing the math for the business side or if I'm swinging a hammer or scraping the floor. I bring my kids with me. Now, most of the time, since my kids are 11, 10, 9, and 4, most of the time, you can guess, they're not very helpful. But I keep reminding myself that if I will bring them along with me, just as I was brought along by others to learn, develop skills, and grow, then one day they will make massive contributions, and I hope they get better at it than I am. And as parents, you know that. When you're washing the dishes around the house and sweeping the floor, one of the reasons it's essential that parents disciple their children to do these kinds of things is because we go farther together. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 4 that two are better than one. There is strength in togetherness. I think our temptation is to focus so much on what we accomplish that we forget who we are becoming. We focus so much on what we are doing that we forget that God has called us to embrace the mission of being. Jesus said in John 17, we are one. He has united us together. So how is it that you're going to involve others in your journey of the Christ life? Bring somebody with you to visit someone ailing in the hospital. Bring them with you when you deliver that meal. Involve them in your journey, whether it's service, hospitality, teaching, Here's the beauty. God is weaving the people of University Baptist Church into a tapestry, into a body that serves in different ways to the glory of God, proclaiming that reality that God has made us one. So I encourage you to keep up the good work here, even as you partner with Builders for Christ last couple of months and a couple months to come. That's a beautiful display. Get involved in ministries like that. Join hands with other brothers and other sisters. Together, we'll make God's name famous. There's a biochemical thing, experience that takes place in our lives. I just wanna kind of wrap up with this. Word of encouragement to you. Neuroscientists have done these studies on chemicals that the body produces when we have pleasure. And they've identified different pleasure chemicals like dopamine, 
the kind of pleasure chemical that your body releases when you're addicted to something and you're eating another bag of chips or uh, another like on social media or whatever the case may be. There's a, diff- a lot of different ways, but dopamine is kind of a short-term pleasure chemical. It doesn't last long. It tends to be associated, affiliated with more addictive kinds of behaviors that aren't ultimately satisfying. There's serotonin, the runner's high, but there's a pleasure chemical called oxytocin. It's a chemical that the body, body releases when you experience pleasure. It's the same pleasure chemical that's released when a husband and wife are together. It's a pleasure chemical that mothers release when they're nursing their children. But it's also a pleasure chemical that's released when people work together to build trust and to overcome obstacles together on mission. Now, these are just secular neuroscientists who are saying this, but here's what I would connect with how God has wired the church and designed the church. He's designed for us to live a joy-filled life full of the pleasure chemical of oxytocin. As we partner together, as we work together, there is a sweet, sweet spirit and experience of being alongside of others. Some of you are here this morning and that sounds very foreign to you because you've never been a part of a group like that on mission to accomplish something like that. Can I invite you to pray and ask the Lord to draw you to himself and to this body? Today could be the day that you repent from your identity and your kingdom you're building and you submit to the Lordship of Christ and join him in the journey of making him known. There are others of you, your prayer needs to be a prayer of commitment to say, God, I've been kind of doing this on my own. I need to get plugged in. I need to get involved and I need to serve alongside of brothers and sisters. Pastors here are willing to talk to you. I would be glad to talk to you afterward and connect you with people to make the right next steps. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to grant us this. Father, there are some who are here this morning and they've seen this picture of the early church how all kinds of anonymous people and then others that we do know their names worked together to lead people to know Jesus, to follow him, and then to make him known to others. And I pray, Lord, that this would be the morning that they would join in. They would join forces with your people on this mission to make you known. And Father, for those who are here this morning and they're kind of stuck, they're Christian but they have missed out on the joy of the journey of serving alongside of others. Whatever their obstacle, whatever their problem that stands in the way, soften their heart, Lord, to see the beauty of God's people working together. We pray these things for your glory. Amen.